I've been speaking today with Carolyn Lindemans, pediatric immunologist at the University Medical Center Utrecht, about her application of mouse and human intestinal organoids to study the role of innate immunity in intestinal regeneration. In her paper, Interleukin-22 Promotes Intestinal Stem Cell-Mediated Epithelial Regeneration, she and her colleagues investigated the role of immune cell-derived IL-22 on tissue regeneration with some very interesting results. So, Carolyn, can we start by speaking a little bit about you as a researcher and how your interest in science began? My interest in science actually probably began quite early on. I think maybe way before thinking about becoming a pediatrician, but it really developed while doing my training in pediatrics and getting acquainted with the with Bomer transplantation and the patients that still face a lot of problems while Bomer transplantation as a procedure is actually a curative procedure for many diseases like leukemia, lymphoma, but also immunodeficiencies and metabolic diseases in pediatrics. But the prognosis is uh, very much impaired still by complications like the one we're talking about here is Parfors' host disease. And that is a complication that I face uh, in my patients daily. So that is something I really wanted to work on. There's been many of those sort of subjects that I, over the years, that I wanted to work on. But this one just particularly got me and, and I stayed with that. So what other paths might you have pursued in an alternate universe? I could have been an archaeologist or trying to figure out what uh, a com- science on a completely different level. I think that's always been interesting to me. Um, but over the last uh, 20 years, I really just wanted to do what I do. I love my job and it's great to be both a pediatric bone transplanter and to be involved in um, science and uh, to actually um, hopefully make a difference doing that. Can you give us an overview of your current research interests? In Parfors' host disease, where I'm particularly um, interested in the role of the epithelium there, the intestinal epithelium, Parfors' host disease affects different organs, um, but one of the most severe is actually when it, uh, when it hits the intestine. It's caused by donor T-cells that are transplanted with the graft, uh, and they uh, make an immune response against the host epithelium. And for many, many years, this has only been treated with giving immunosuppressants to, to impair the T-cell function. Of course, that has also the side effects associated with immunosuppressant, and it's still not very good. There's still a lot of uh, patients that do not respond to that. And the role of the epithelium um, just interests me very much. Um, also because there's been lots of associations between, with oral feeding, with uh, microbiota in the gut, and those are all... Uh, just clinical associations that people or transplanters actually um, already are making decisions on to either um, give certain antibiotics or give always oral feeding or not at all, or, but it's, most of it's not based on actual science. And this role of the epithelium, which is the, the lining in between all that, between the immune system and whatever is happening in the gut, I find uh, really interesting to figure out what, what that role exactly is and how we can influence that to the to the better. Was it looking at trying to ameliorate the situation with graft versus host disease that led to the publication of your... That was actually probably what led to the, inter- to the interest in, in looking in epithelium in graft versus host disease. But what, what is very interesting to me is how even the immune system in this case produces something like IL-22, which uh, affects actually the epithelium to recover itself from damage. 
Um, so the, the, the intestine is hit by whatever is happening and the, the immune system even has a response already ready to, uh, to try and recover. But specifically, this response is being impaired in graft versus host disease. We try to figure out how that actually works, how the immune system does that, and how out, specifically how AL22 works on the intestinal epithelium. And um, as we now understand that from the paper that was published by Professor van der Brink and Alan Hennersch, that the intestinal stem cells themselves are, are depleted in graft versus host. The intestine doesn't have any capacity to recover by itself. How you can stimulate the intestine to recover again by giving AL22, which would normally have been produced by the immune system, um, and how that actually works and recovers the stem cell numbers. In your paper, which was published in Nature last December, you use organoid cultures as one way of sort of interrogating this system and the interplay between the immune system and, and signaling there and the intestinal epithelium. Can you tell me why you chose to use organoids as a model system in this case? I think we chose organoids as a, as a system because the research that's been done in mice is still uh, still looking at a whole organism. It's really hard to dissociate the effects from the immune system, from the epithelium, from microbiota, from anything that's happening in the gut. And the, the whole readout is the mice dies or has uh, symptoms of coughers, host disease. It is very revealing, apparently, to take to take out just the epithelium and, and try to uh, to pick apart what's happening there. Uh, again, not going as far as taking a tumor cell line and just looking at that, because of course lots of research has been done on tumor cell lines, but this is not tumor cell lines, it's physiological um, cell lines growing in 3D models, where the, especially in the intestine, the model is, is particularly nice because it still has the has all the cell types there in its 3D appearance. And so that, that's at least the case for, for mouse organoids. And it's, it's very nice also to com- be able to compare and do the same for the human uh, system to take the human cells and look at the epithelium and then add in, again, the specific cell types that you want to look at. So it's definitely not giving you everything that a, that a whole organism is, but it's giving you much more than just the cancer cell lines and looking at uh, non-cancerous cells. So it sounds like the benefits to your work were really being able to get the best of both worlds as far as being able to ask very specific scientific questions. Exactly, very scientific questions to specific cell types. But then also having a more organotypic system than you might expect from a cell line, for example. Exactly, yeah. Can you describe the type of organoids that you were using We've been using um, intestinal organoids from large intestine, small intestine from mice. Um, the nice uh, thing about the mouse model is indeed that it still has this complete 3D structure with crypt forming, uh, with crypt formation, and that you can also, and then again you can use also the benefit of the mice that you can use specific knockout models or flox mice where you can uh, ask uh, specific questions uh, to look at specific molecules or specific pathways, which is, of course, still not possible in the, in the human uh, situation. Uh, but So that, that's very nice about the mouse model. And the other uh, organoids I used was human organoids from uh, small intestine, from both adults and children, that are just available from actually biobanked, uh, like to explain it, from biobanked organoids, people that have been tested for a disease but didn't actually have the disease. So in this work, you performed co-cultures of innate lymphoid cells and murine intestinal epithelial organoids 
Was this a challenging culture system to work with? Um, were there sort of bugs work to work out when you were setting up this system? I think we carefully had to look where, what type of cells we were looking for, the specific phenotype, uh, how to be able to, uh, to sort for these cell types from mice. But otherwise, I think it was... It was up to here, it was reasonably straightforward. But of course, yeah, the tweet, you always have to tweak these things a little bit for which cytokine uh, does it work with, which cytokine do this inter- innate lymphocyte cells actually produce HAL22. If you stimulate them with HAL23, do they uh, stay alive in the culture system while you're doing that? And there's still lots more questions to ask and see if we, if we can even make this model better. And I, I hope in the future to actually expand this model uh, because I'm very interested, of course, coming from the grafters host issue to add in activated T-cells. What challenges do you anticipate there? On how T-cells, how you get them alloreactive, ex vivo before adding them into the co-culture and how them to keep them alive in the co-culture. How close should the contact actually be between the epithelium and the the Mm T-cells? So I think there's lots more more hurdles to take, but... uh, uh, so one issue faced by many groups using Organize is the standardization of culture starting conditions and how this affects the metrics that are used to evaluate the experimental outcomes. I know if you're not starting from single cells, then how you're passaging the Organize can definitely affect the heterogeneity in your culture. Can you comment on how your group arrived at the metrics that you used? Yes, um, I, I think we tried... We. We've always tried different things, but also come to the conclusion that for most things, especially if you're looking for size as a readout, which is a size of the organoids as a measure of for, for growth, that, you, that it's easier to start from single cells. Or you should start from, from crypts, as long as they're all the same size starting out. And I think that is, that is one thing that is easier. And I think for the co-cultures, it seems that it's indeed easier also because you're, you're creating more contact between the the cells and the, the immune cells and the, and the single cells. Do you see advantages or drawbacks to using size as a readout in these culture systems? The advantage is that it's a, it's a very simple uh, measurement. It can be done, in, in our hands it seems, uh, uh, I tried with different people as well, it can be done reproducibly. But, uh, of course, the organoids grow in a 3D culture and it's still... Um, they are in a different plane to figure exactly out what is the largest plane, horizontal plane. Um, correlating that to which would be best probably to the, the 3D volume uh, of these organoids is going to be quite hard and quite time consuming also. But it's, I would like to, to even figure out better ways to, to do this. Yeah. So in your experiments, you observed increased budding in response to IL-22 stimulation what was the interpretation of this data as it relates to the stem cell population? As the understanding is now, I think, is that budding um, is new crypt formation. And new crypts can only arise if there's uh, a local gradient of wind. And uh, so a panacell and a stem cell presence that have interaction leading to new formation of of crypts. So I, I think we have interpreted it at least as, as a, a measure of uh, stem cell function, a readout for stem cell function in the 3D mouse organoid. But it's it's also quite challenging, challenging to measure it because you have to, the organoids bud all the time and they start out from being around uh, cysts, but you have really have to lower the concentration of R-spondin to, to catch the moment where you can actually me- measure and compare the budding. 
Do you have an interpretation of the finding that the small intestinal organoid generation was less efficient at high IL-22 concentrations? Um, Definitely there is something going on at the higher concentrations. They were still growing, the organoids were still going bigger, but there were, well, the efficiency was going down. Um, that is a toxicity effect. We interpreted this now as toxicity effect that we're still working on and trying to figure that out. And it might actually have more to do uh, with the culture system than it actually does with what, what would be happening in vitro. Uh, you might drive the proliferation so much that there could be an imbalance between growth factors or uh, it, the 3D culture system also has something really artificial in there that you have to keep in mind as well. We're unsure whether or not these toxic effects would also we would also find in vivo. So potentially running into a bottleneck in another mechanism. Yeah, exactly. So in, interesting, but I'm not sure if, <laughs> if it is, has more to do with the culture system as a whole but, uh, and, and less with what Al-22 actually does. But it might actually lead to very interesting clues on what Al-22 does more than just what we found out so far. Can you tell me if there were any surprising conclusions from your work? I think it's entirely surprising that we were able to find that an, a cytokine that's being produced by the immune system that apparently has a role in graft versus host. If you look at it in knockout models, these mice have a more severe graft versus host disease. If you look at it by losing, neutralizing antibodies, these mice have more graft versus host disease. But with it, that we quite quickly were able to, to see that these mice can also be rescued to some extent by giving them L22 is a completely different thing and that this actually affects stem cells in a completely different way than we would previously thought. We, we thought this would be uh, through Benetels and it's not. It's just, it seems to be either a separate pathway or pathways that are interacted with the pathways, of course, that the wind pathway that is already known. And that's um, entirely surprising, I think, and very interesting to, uh, to pursue further even. I was very struck while reading the paper that you found that it was both Wnt and beta-catenin signaling independent as well as panacell independent. independent. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the most surprising things of the paper, actually. Yeah. There's a caveat there that, also, of course, it, do, it still does need the active Wnt and beta-catenin pathway, but what, whatever's being induced by L22 is not through this pathway. Yeah. It's an additional response. Can you give us sort of the cliff's notes of this paper and, and say what the major conclusions were? The main findings of the paper were actually that AL-22, a cytokine that's normally being produced by the immune system, has an effect on the recovery of intestinal stem cells through a mechanism that's completely independent of pennant cells and that it actually activates STAT3 in intestinal stem cells um, and thereby uh, leads to increased proliferation of, uh, of the intestinal crypt cells. And um, as such, that even giving L22 in a disease that actually where ICs are actually depleted, that uh, L22 can rescue them from having less severe disease and less mortality. So in this work, you used both in vivo mouse studies and in vitro human and mouse organoid cultures. Was there an advantage of this approach? Did comparing the data generated using these different techniques help to inform data interpretation? Yes, I think the in vivo Mouse work actually really gives you an idea if, if something works and is worth investigating better. Um, but um, the mouse system, the mouse organoids, then again give you lots of more room to test things, to, um, to look at the, uh, in different models with different uh, genetic knockout mice. 
to actually ask specific questions on mechanism, while the human organoids give you some idea if this would actually ever work in humans as well without actually testing it in humans. And it's actually amazing that these, these data already uh, have led to now the, have been the preclinical work of a study that's actually started in January, a study where uh, in severe graft-versus-host disease with gut involvement, uh, we're testing the effect of this new compound, S652, in patients that have, that have this disease together with steroids to see if, it has an, uh, if it's safe and hopefully has an effect. So the in vivo studies then are giving you an indication if the results that you see in vitro have a magnitude that's great enough that you're actually going to see an effect. Kind of, that you're actually going to see an effect while the, while the in vitro work actually gives you more understanding of the actual me- mechanism, gives you some understanding of the risks on toxicity, uh, maybe on the, on the range where you're supposed to be. The human work gives you more it gives you, uh, again, the actual tissue that you, you're, you're hoping that it will work in. And that's, I think that's all very interesting. And also the human organoid system, I don't know if you're familiar with, it, with the intestinal organoid culture in human and in mouse models. It's, it's different because the human requires additional wind in the culture, which unfortunately uh, uh, makes you lose the crypt formation, the crypt culture, uh, the actual crypt Formation. So the, the, the beautiful 3D model of the mouse that gives you more understanding on what actually happens on that level, on that 3D level, uh, you don't have that in the human system. So that's why the mouse system also is, I think, of a lot of additional value to also look at. So you've already alluded to this work starting to be translated into clinical research. Where do you see this heading? Hopefully this, this proves to be a therapy that's safe in humans, which is of course something that we will have to uh, to see if any of the if we if we really do not observe any new toxicity that we didn't expect. But then I see this heading not just maybe for graft host disease, but for many diseases where intestinal stem cells are depleted or where uh, intestinal re- regeneration could be beneficial. I think this could be wider. This application could be wider than just this disease which is still actually an orphan disease, so under the rare diseases. On a personal note, are you able to sort of think in the future of when you might be applying a therapy based on this work to one of your pediatric patients? It's a difficult question. I think that also has to do with uh, American regulations, European regulations, of course. But I think if this trial is successful, the next trial will be successful. And I think moving towards children is definitely an option. You see that a lot, and especially in, in, in bone marrow transplant as a whole, there's a lot of uh, back-against-the-wall problems here. And I, I actually feel in the whole of cellular therapy that it's, it's a field moving quite quickly. And it's amazing that we can use these tools to, uh, to quickly move and to get the preclinical work done to get to trials. But I think everyone is very open to, to move these trials forward. And I you see that happening all the time, trials moving forward in cellular therapy. So I, I'm confident that in, I don't know, maybe five years, that if the trial is successful, that that, that will be possible. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Carolyn. And I absolutely wish you the best with all of your work. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. For more information on how scientists are using organoids to further their research, visit www.stemcell.com slash organoids podcast 
for featured applications, researcher profiles, and more.